0: To me, it's much more about the three to six months prior to purchasing the item and and looking at every store and, and every place and every place online and doing research on the item that I'm shopping for. Uh, I've done it with cars, um, any appliance, uh, anything that would be like a big purchase, which for me could be like a microwave. I mean, anything that is big, I'll research it and search it over and over and over again and, and figure out. Am I getting the best deal? Am I getting the best uh, brand name? Do they have the best, uh, will it last longer? Um, So it works like this, I end up at Walmart and I talk to the guy, then I go to Target and I talk to the guy, and then I go to Best Buy and talk to their guy, and then I end up at Fry's and I talk to their guy. And I find out what's the best one and and, and which one works the best, which one works the longest, and, and then I end up going home and going on eBay and comparing the prices. And then I go to tigerdirect.com and compare, overstock.com and check Google Shopping and check. The, I mean, this is a thorough investigation. And then I go into the stores again as I fil- find my research. And then you'll see me with my, uh, with my iPhone. And I'll, and I'll take a picture of the barcode on the item at the store. And then I can find out how much it's selling for on Amazon. Did you know you could do that? If you get Amazon's app, it'll tell you. And you could right there. I have it, I have it set up so I one click I can buy on Amazon. So if I find it's a lot better on Amazon, boom, bought. And the poor box store lost my business. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it is a whole process for me, an elaborate process, figuring out did I buy the best thing at the best price? I did this recently. Um, just bought a 55-inch HD... 1080p LED monstrosity, it's on my wall right now. I bought it in September. And I did this whole process three to, so when I buy something, it's like three to six months prior I've been investigating, right? And, and, and I went to all the stores, and I went to all the online shops and all these things, and, and, I, and I come to find out, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll freely give you this tidbit of research here, uh, that Fry's is easily the best place to buy a TV as, as far as price-wise. Now, Best Buy will give you better financing for 36 months. They'll give you a 0%, but, but they'll also charge you $400 more for your TV. So, uh, Fry's is the best place. And so, as I'm learning Fry's and figuring out Fry's and figuring out which TV I want do I want LG? Do I want you know, all these things? Figuring all these things out I notice that Fry's does a thing where they, they put a, a, an ad out every week. Like on Thursday night, they have the ad for the weekend. And then on Monday, sometimes they'll have a two day ad. So, I'm on my iPad at home. And, and I'm looking at the ad, and I see, ooh, look, there's a TV. This is 55-inch. This one's 60-inch. This one's 65-inch. And they'll say the TV and how big it is, and then it'll give you the price. But it doesn't give you the brand name. Those losers, they know exactly what they're doing. And so I go, okay, I'll call them. And I call them. I say, well, I see this ad, and there's, you know, there's 55-inch. I'm wondering, how, you know, what brand name is it, is it. And they say, oh, I'm sorry. We don't give you that kind of information over the phone. <laughs> I go, you jerks. <laughs> you have to come in the store to get that information. You see what they're trying to do? Right? And then you have to walk all the way to the back of the store, the TV section. They want to make it really hard for you to get out, right? And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, I have these ads now, and I'm watching them weekly because I want to figure out. I know I have football season coming up. Uh, the, the Giants with the World Series. I think God rewarded me for buying the TV. Okay, he doesn't really do that. But the point is, I, I'm doing all this research, and so I'm sitting there with my wife, I live in Vallejo. The nearest fries is in Concord, and I there's a TV there. I don't know what brand it is. I got I got to find out what brand it is so I can know if it's a good deal or not. Right? Of course. And so I go, honey, uh, babe. Do you want some Krispy Kreme? Well, David, you know I love Krispy Kreme, the chocolate with the custard. I know you do, honey. And I am here to be the man I'm supposed to be. <laughs> I will be your husband, and I will go over the bridge into Concord and get you some Krispy Kreme. Why? As any excuse will do. <laughs> I got to go see that TV. The next week another ad comes out and I see another TV and, and this one has 3D glasses. I don't, I don't watch the TV in 3D, but who cares? It's a good deal? What brand is? It? I got to go, honey, how do you feel about some cinnabon? You see, because in the Sun Valley Mall they have a cinnabon and you never get your cinnabon, oh, I'd love so, oh honey, I am here to be your man and I will go and get you the cinnabon. I'm telling you I could find an excuse to go to Fry's to figure out what the TV's cost. That's just the way I am, it's kind of weird. I'm the guy who will go on Black Friday, wake up at four in the morning, I'll go on Black Friday to fries. buy nothing, buy nothing. Walk up to my TV and make sure I still got a better deal in September than it is on Black Friday. That's how I am, I I really am. Any excuse will do. Can you relate to that? There's this little shop in San Francisco, uh, It's a rotisserie chicken place on 20th and Mission. We call it 20th and Mission Chicken. Have I told you about it yet? It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I've been going there since I was five years old. reminds me of my mom. These Greeks, they know how to make rotisserie chicken. You know? Uh, And it's the same guys there since I was a little kid. They don't don't change. They look the same. It's really interesting. And so I go there. I love that place. I will find any excuses to go to San Francisco to go to 20th and Mission Chicken. It's called Pete's Barbecue, but I always call it 20th and Mission Chicken. I'll get on the BART, whatever I need to do to get there. In fact, if one of you guys comes to me today and says after service, hey, I really want to try that out, I might be in your car today going to San Francisco, <laughs> because any excuse will do. They asked uh, uh, automobile policy policyholders, um, they got a list of their excuses for why they got an accident, and this is what they come up with, and I saved the best one for last, but uh, an invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and then vanished. The other car collided into mine without warning, Uh, without warning me of its intention. I've been driving my car for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. As I reached the intersection, a hedge sprung up, obscuring my vision. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. A lot of us, not, not me, but a lot of us can relate. A telephone pole was approaching fast. I wasn't approaching the telephone pole fast. It was approaching me fast. And uh, uh, I attempted to swerve out of its path, but it struck my front end. It struck me. The telephone pole struck me. Right. The guy was all over the road and I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. The indirect cause of this accident was a little guy with a small car and a big mouth. And my favorite one, the pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran him over. (laughs) Any excuse will do. Can you relate? All of us have situations or things in life that we can make excuses for, right? We all have these things, and we just, I I just know how to make an excuse to do what I want to do. Can you relate to that? I mean, if you're just being honest on the inside, just being, I can make an excuse for what I want to do. And today we're going to see that Jesus challenges people on their excuses. We're going to watch how Jesus challenges people on their excuses. How does God respond to our excuses? Which excuses are acceptable to God and which excuses are not? How does God differentiate between which ones are acceptable and which ones are not? How does God view our excuses? And for that, we're going to go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. So while you go there, John chapter 10, if you're new and uh, you're visiting us, there's a Bible before you. You can certainly have access to that. If you don't know where the book of John is, okay, ask your neighbor. If they don't know, say, shame on you. And you can go to the first page in your Bible, there's a little index there, it'll show you what page it's on, okay? It's the fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 10. We're going we're gonna to continue in our, in our series in the book of John, and uh, we're going to finish up chapter 10. If you can remember, we've been about four weeks on uh, uh, John chapter 10 and in in the idea of uh, Jesus being the great shepherd who knows his sheep. And we're going to kind of finish off John chapter 10 today. So John chapter 10. While you turn there, you got to remember that in John chapter 2, Jesus changes water into wine. In John chapter 4, he heals the hopeless. Uh, he, he takes his official's uh, son, and he heals him from 20 miles away. In chapter 4, he says, I, I don't even have to be there. I'll just heal him from far away. Uh, John chapter 5, he heals the helpless. Uh, this is a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. Everybody's seen his whole life, and all of a sudden, all God, uh, Jesus heals him. That's John chapter 5. John chapter 6, he feeds thousands. And then John chapter 10, have we seen in the last several weeks, he is described as the gate. He's the giver of life to the full. He is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep, and no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. A concept that we've been talking about for about three or four weeks. It's been wonderfully encouraging, has it not? That's the context of where we're going. And at the very end of him saying he's the shepherd, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, he makes this statement that I and the Father are one. He says, I and the Father are one, and the the Jewish people who are listening to him are so upset by that statement, they pick up stones with the idea that they were going to stone him and throw it at him until he dies. Let's look at it. Go to John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one, verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which one of these do you stone me? "'We are not stoning you for any of these,' replied the Jews, "'but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God.' "'Jesus answered them, "'Is it not written in your law, "'I have said, you are gods?' "'If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, "'and the scriptures cannot be broken, "'what about the one whom the Father set apart "'as his very own and sent into the world? "'Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy, "'because I said, I am God's Son?' Do you, you don't believe, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And here it comes again, and I am in the Father. He goes right back to it. I and the Father are one. And again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan, the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said though John never performed a miraculous sign All that John said about this man was true And in that place many believed in Jesus Excuses based on technicalities Excuses based on technicalities This is a really interesting story Here Jesus makes this claim that I and the Father are one And all the Jews pick up stones and they say we're going to stone you In fact we have biblical rights to stone you because you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. They understood what he was saying. You are saying you are one with God. You are one in essence. You are one in will and purpose. You, you, are, you are claiming deity with God. They understood him well. And, and really, that is punishable by death. If a human being says they are God, that is blasphemy, and you kill them. You pick up stones, and you kill them. The only problem is if he really is God, then it's not blasphemy. So they were within their biblical right. They were just wrong about him. And so their their, their conflict is over the idea of him being God and him having oneness with God and him being united with God. And Jesus says, hey, wait a second, you got a problem over the title God? You've got a problem over the title Son of God? And he says, but God's used that before. I've got biblical rights to that title. Look at verse 34. Then Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? Kind of interesting, your law, your law. That thing that you hold around, you carry with you, you feel so good about because you you have possession of the law, as if carrying it meant anything, as if it it did something to you by osmosis or something. Uh, Your law, you know that thing you carry around? Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scriptures cannot be broken. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? You know what he's doing here? He's quoting Psalm 82. And we got to spend some time here because it's a very, very misunderstood passage. Because it says you are gods. So I remember when I was um, 14, 15 years old. I was just coming to Valley, and I was just coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And shortly after I'd come to faith in Jesus Christ, my mother was like doing her own thing. She was like going the new age route. She went to Shasta. I don't know what they do in Shasta, but I know they go to Shasta. And uh, she had a picture of her with a rock. I, I don't know. Anyway, she came home and she says, "You know, we're all gods." And I go, "No, we're not. There's one God." I mean, I know that. I don't know a lot about the Bible, but I know there's one God, and we are not him. Right? And, uh, and she's like, well, she, she showed me this passage. She went to John chapter 10 and verse 34. Is it not written in the law? I have said you are gods. I didn't know what to do with it at the time. It does seem to say that. What is it talking about? So it's really, really misunderstood. Let me read you the whole, the whole, the whole um, Psalm 82 so we can get some context. And you can go back in your own time and read it yourself. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing and they understand nothing. They walk about the darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then verse 6 says, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die as mere men, and you will fall like every other ruler. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth. All the nations are in your inheritance. You know what the context is? God is saying, you are my people. I've set you aside as judges, as rulers of the people, and you're not administering the rule as if I would. I put you there to rule over people, you're supposed to oversee them in the same way that I would oversee them, and you're not doing that, and I'm disappointed in your failure. He's using the word God there in the sense that you're representing God, and really you're a presiding judge. It's not the only place we see that in the Old Testament, there's other places where, where the word Elohim for God, not the word Yahweh, but Elohim for God is used as uh, judge, uh, judges. It's another way to translate Elohim, not often, but it happens. You can see in Exodus 22 if you, wanted to, if you wanted to take it up. But it's not talking about the divine nature in a man. It's talking about how they're representing God and presiding over people. So what's the argument? The argument is this. You guys are getting all wrapped up and all in a tizzy about this title, about this, I call myself son of God. I call I have union with God. I call myself God. You get all wrapped up in that title. And yet the Bible, it says, shows that there's other people out there who have that title, So why are you getting all bent out of shape about me? And more so, the title is not the issue. The issue is what I'm doing. You're missing the whole track of all the miracles I'm doing that would validate the title. And you're looking at the title. You're getting wrapped up in this technicality of a title. And it means nothing. Look at the miracles I've done. Look what it says. Look at 34. Isn't it written in your law that I have said you are God's? If he called them gods, so whom God's word came, and the scriptures came, cannot be broken, what about the one who, set, who, fought, who the Father set apart as his very own and set into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do, do, not believe, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. And here he's throwing the miracles in. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in him. But he goes right back to it again. You see, we are one. And again, what did they do? They tried to seize him. They understood exactly what was going on, and Jesus understood exactly what was going on. I'm claiming to be God, not based on a title, based on the miracles that I can do. You won't believe me because you don't want any part of me. You embrace the technicality. You make an excuse based on a technicality, and yet I am God, and I will not refuse to tell you that I'm God, I'm not scared of that. There are people out there who say, he never, Jesus never claimed to be God. They understood it to mean that he, that he thought he was God. So much so they're ready to kill him. And he didn't stop them. The miracles validate my title, and yet you won't believe. Why? Because any excuse will do. Any excuse will do. Any excuse will do. You refuse to listen. Why? Because any excuse will do. Any excuse will do. The irony here is the chapter ends with Jesus crossing the Jordan and heading over to a a side where the Gentiles were, And although they didn't see one miracle They believed in the testimony of John Who did no miracles And they believed in Jesus And yet here you have this religious people Who see many miracles And don't believe So it ends us on an ironic note And why? Why wouldn't they believe? They wouldn't believe because any excuse will do And it's not unlike What we see in other places in the Bible Why don't you turn to Luke chapter 9 Turn with me to Luke chapter 9 Any excuse will do. Luke chapter 9. As our pastor would say, I want to hear pages. Luke chapter 9. Any excuse will do. We've seen excuses based on the technicality. We've seen excuses based on a title. And now we're going to see excuses rooted in spiritual talk. Excuses rooted in spiritual talk. Look at Luke chapter 9. We're going to 57. Excuses rooted in spiritual talk. Luke chapter 9 verse 57 says this. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has no place to lay his head. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I, I've got no pillow. I've got no residence. Animals have better residence Are you sure you want to follow me? Are you sure that's what you want? Do you realize what you're, what you're saying when you say that? And so he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. This becomes really hard to understand here. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let me go bury my father. No, 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 forget about the dead. Let them bury their own. The kingdom of God needs you. Verse 61, still another man says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Okay, I don't want to necessarily bury them. I just want to say goodbye. What does Jesus say? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's really interesting. you got these two guys. Jesus is walking along, and they say, we'll follow you. And they set a couple of conditions out. The first guy says, I I just got to, I got to, I got to see to my family. I got to make sure my parents, uh, 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 I bury my parents. Which, by the way, the Old Testament talks about honoring your father and your mother, right? And the New Testament talks about honoring your father and your mother, Ephesians chapter 6, so, and really the honoring there is probably more of the idea of, and and, and, and we think of it as uh, 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 having a good attitude towards our parents, but it probably is more of the idea of financially taking them, taking them, uh, taking responsibility over them until they die. That's the idea. And so here you have a guy saying, I just want to see my parents their grave and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus says, no. Now what is going on there? Why in the world would, he, would, 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 would a guy who comes to you and says, I want to honor things that are in the Word, why would you say no to that? Is, is Jesus really saying you shouldn't honor your parents? Is that really what he's trying to say? You know what he's doing? He's going after the excuse that's rooted in spiritual talk. You're using your family as an excuse, but you don't understand. I can see right through all those things. I'm God. I can see straight to the heart. And and whether it's that your parents aren't really dying right now or or whether it's they're already dead and you're making an excuse or whatever it is, your heart isn't necessarily to honor your parents. You just don't want to follow. And so I'm going to call you out on it. Don't use your family as a lame excuse of why you won't follow the Lord. The kingdom of God is way too important. We can't wait. But any excuse will do. The second guy goes, okay, well, I don't want to bury my parents. I just want to say goodbye to them. And this one is actually using the Bible as an excuse. Now, I know none of us do that, especially us guys who know a lot of the Bible, went to school. We don't ever use it as an excuse for what we want to do, do we? He's using the Bible as an excuse. You know know why? Because he's actually alluding to something that happened in the Old Testament. And Jesus catches on to it. You see, in the Old Testament there was a guy named Elijah. He was a prophet and he he went around and he was looking for an understudy. And he found Elisha. And he went, Elijah went to Elisha, and he said, yeah, you're going to be my understudy. And Elisha said, oh, great. That's wonderful. I'm ready to go. Let me go say goodbye to my mother and father. And, and Elijah says, it's okay. See what he's doing to Jesus? He's like, I'll follow you. I just want to say goodbye to my friends, just like Elisha. I'll be Elisha. You can be Elijah. I'll be Elisha. And I'll go say goodbye, and I'll follow you. Now, here's the interesting part of the story. Elijah comes onto Elisha while he's plowing, all right, do you see, you see the transfer here? you see the parallelism? He's plowing, and Elisha says, okay, I'm going to go to my parents. I'm going to say goodbye. I'm going to kill all the oxen that I was using to plow, and I'm going to take the plow itself, and I'm going to, this is in uh, 2 Kings 19, if you ever want to look at it, right? I, I'm going to take the plow itself and use it as the, as the, uh, the fuel for the fire that I'm going to basically cook the oxen and give everybody some meat before I leave. So he takes the plow, he puts it into a pile, makes a fire, kills the oxen, slaughters them, makes a meal, gives everybody, says goodbye to his parents, and he goes. And this guy is coming to Jesus and saying, hey, I just want to say goodbye to him just like Alicia, and then I'll come follow you. You can't possibly get me on that one, can you? And Jesus says, I know exactly what you're doing. I see exactly what you're doing. You're trying to take the Bible and use it as your excuse. You don't really want to follow me. You don't really want to say goodbye. You just want to get out of this conversation really easily. And he says, I know exactly what you're talking about. Just remember this. He took the plow and he burned it. And he never looked back. And so his response is: no one who puts his hands on the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Any excuse will do. Any excuse will do. I can come up with a myriad of excuses. My family gives me excuses. The Bible gives me excuses. I can be spiritually manipulative. I, I can come up with excuses and God, and Jesus is saying, Don't you get it? Don't you see? I see right through all the excuses. I'm God. I see right through them. What's the big idea? How does God view your excuses for not following him? He sees right through them. How does God view your excuses for not following him? He sees right through them. We all come in our, and we bring our Bibles, and, and, and a lot of us have these big, thick Bibles, and we take Pastor Phil's notes and we stick them in there, and every page has a note, and, and we have to have this zipper thing to zip it up because it's so big, you know, I don't want to lose any notes, and, 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 and I highlight it, and I write it, and these are all good things. But there's other times where we come across scripturism and there's things that we don't like and we stick an invisible note in there. And that invisible note is my excuse for not following it. And so we have this Bible full of notes of things we like and full of notes of excuses. And we bring them to church with us every week. What excuse did you bring with yourself this week? What excuse did you bring with you this week? I mean, really go down deep with me. So open up the heart a little bit and look in there. What excuse did you bring? Not, oh man, I wish my, my sister was here. She needs a his. Oh, my cousin needs a his. Or I'm going to get this sermon and I'm going to give it to this person. No, no, you, you. What excuse did you bring with yourself this week? And we all do this, myself included. When we don't want to follow the Lord, any excuse will do. Whether you're a believer or a non believer, any excuse will do. Whether you come here all the time or you're visiting, any excuse will do. For us believers, it's when we're living in the flesh and not living in the spirit. And we make excuses for not following him. <laughs> it's when we come to church and we notice in the bulletin that Pastor Phil's not preaching, and so we leave. Any excuse will do. It's when we grumble and complain about the church's leadership and how they're handling things, and the elders do this, and I don't like the way they did that, and this shows they're being too legalistic, or this shows they're not, they're not gracious enough, and you have all these things going on. Knowing that the Bible says you should follow your leaders and make their work joyous to them. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Highlight it. It's when you take a couple weeks off at church because the church is talking about money. And that's all they talk about is money. Man, I can't I just come and worship Jesus? I don't want to you know, try to get in my pocketbook all the time. Knowing that God uses money as an indicator to figure out where your heart is. But any excuse will do. It's when you continue to participate in the same sin over and over and over and over again knowing that God says the remedy for this is to confess your sin to your brother, and that you should carry each other's burdens, but you don't, because any excuse will do. It's not only for believers, it's also for visitors. You come every once in a while, and you, you hear things that you think are nice, and they make you feel spiritual, and, and you leave feeling good about yourself. I check off today. Today I did my spiritual check. I feel spiritual. I go home. I, I went to church today. It's when you're touched by a worship song and, and, and you see Deborah up here with that song. It's an amazing, like it was written for her. She's sick, singing about how she was, God had taken her out of the Myra clay and set her on the rock and you can feel her emotion when she sings it. And it's so, you can feel it so much in, the, in your heart. You even have a tear come down your eye and yet you will not give control of your life because any excuse will do. It's when you're visiting and, and your heart starts pounding at the end of a message and it's beating and it's beating and it's beating, and it's beating because you know God is talking to you and yet you double down on your stubbornness and you will not allow this God to transform your life because any excuse will do. You've heard over and over again that Jesus Christ came down on earth to live a life that we could never live and die a death that we all should die and that everybody who believed in him would have eternal life. You take stock in the fact that you know that story and yet you never look at the fact that your life says you don't know him at all because any excuse will do. How does God view your excuses for not following him? He sees right through them. How does God view your excuses for not following him? He sees right through them. How does God view your excuses for not following him? He sees right through them. And we think to ourselves, we got time, we got time. I can't follow him today, but I will follow him one day. It's just not right now. You know, it's interesting that in the book of Luke, chapter 13, you can look it up on. you can write it down. Verses 6 to 9, it's a little story. And Jesus starts telling the story. It's a really neat story. He says, there's this guy who owned a garden, and he had a gardener. He owned a garden, and he'd walk out through his garden just to look at everything that he has in his garden. And there's one fig tree there, and he's been visiting the garden for three years, and in three years, that fig tree has never produced a fruit. Finally, he goes to the gardener. And he says, gardener, chop that thing down. And the gardener looks back and says, okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me dig around it. Let me add fertilizer to it. And let's see if we can get some fruit out of that tree next year. And if if we can do that, great. And if we can't, next year we'll chop it down. We think we have time. But the scriptures say the axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come for me to act. I will not hold back. I will not have pity, nor will I relent. You will be judged according to your conduct and your actions, declares the sovereign Lord. You see, we have a patient God, but his patience only goes so far. Any excuse will do. When will you give up the excuses? Father, we all come. Different areas in our life, we have an excuse of why we don't do what you tell us to do. Whether we're believers living in the flesh, or visitors who need to embrace you for the first time. I ask you to give us the courage to rise up out of our own pride, drop the excuses, and truly give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name.